please remain standing for the reading of today's scripture from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 18 to 19. And to the angel of the church in Tyre, write, these are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and is teaching you and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware. I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her I am throwing into great distress, unless they repent of her doings, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserves. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers to, and continues to do my work to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered, even as I also received authority from my Father. To the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you so much, Blair, for reading our text this morning, and welcome to all of you on this uh, wonderful early spring day uh, that has been so beautiful and such a surprise uh, to us. We're grateful that the Jubilation Choir, the Middle High Choir, is back from their retreat, and we've had the privilege of hearing them share special music with our Chancel Choir. We're grateful for the wonderful music. And Jonathan Setzer, who is on the bench today, uh, we welcome Jonathan. He is uh, subbing for Greg Bunn, who is away from us, and we're always grateful for Jonathan and for his gift of music. And to all of you, I realize today, what many of you do, that this is one of the high and holy days in the liturgical calendar in that it's Super Bowl Sunday today. And uh, I thought it might just be helpful to me before the message to get a feel for the room, just so I know the context that I'm in today. Uh, how many of you are going to be pulling for the Patriots this afternoon? Raise your hand. All right. And how many of you for the Rams? Wow. Do you know it's been like that at every service? It is a majority. It, it is two-thirds for the Rams. Now, I'm, I'm like you. Anybody that grows up going to Vanderbilt football games is an underdog guy. I'm pulling for the Rams today, although I do fear a burnt offering of a Ram at the Super Bowl today. Uh, and I think Tom Brady has the matches for that. So, um, but we… Um, 
We look forward to this afternoon. It's always an interesting time. Uh, If you're joining with us uh, in worship today for the first time, you've caught us right in the thick of this series called Defying Gravity. And what we're doing together is we're doing a close-up on the seven churches of Asia Minor uh, in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And so we're really only dealing with chapters 2 and 3 during this series together. These seven churches of Asia, I want to remind you, are struggling faith communities that are facing hard times, not in spite of their faith, but because of their faith. And we pointed out last week that as disciples, you and me, we are not called to be anti-cultural. We're not called to avoid or escape or withdraw from the world. Our own spiritual founder, at least denominationally, Mr. Wesley, said the world is our parish. And so that's our context. Even Jesus said just before the ascension, Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded. That is our context. And so we're not anti-cultural. God doesn't hate the world. God loves the world so much so that He gave His only Son that whoever believes should not perish but have life. But we are called to be countercultural. We're called to be different from the world. And the Greek word that's used quite often is the word hagios, which means holy. It means peculiar. It means that when people see you, when they see your deeds, they recognize that there is something different about you. I think that's exactly what Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Romans in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In fact, J.B. Phillips' translation of that same text says it like this, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't be a cookie-cutter cultural disciple. We also mentioned last week that sometimes the biggest problems, the biggest hurdles that the church faces is not the result of external pressure, but internal tension. And I submit to you, this is the case in Thyatira. I knew, Blair, when you read that text, I wonder, it sucks all the air out of the room. And you're wondering, where on earth are we going? And Blair, I'm sure, in her mind said, why me? Although she did admit it's not the most startling text she's ever read in worship before, Leviticus is probably the most startling. The struggle they're facing is inside pressure. It's false teaching. Now, I decided last week who the false teachers of our age are. You know who they are? The weathermen. (laughs) Not to be exclusive, weather women too didn't do much better. We were told last weekend, and my wife got on to me because I actually said something about it from the pulpit. We were told last weekend that on Monday night, the apocalypse was coming. At first, it was six to eight inches, and then it changed to four to six inches, and then two to four inches, and then one inch, and then one-third of an inch. We got up on Tuesday morning, and I looked out the window, nothing not a flake, not a drop. 
of precipitation. In fact, when I went out to get the paper, I stubbed my toe on the dry pavement. I mean, it, and kids were crying everywhere. I mean, you should have seen the teachers, actually. And personally, I don't know about you, but with that prediction, I'd been setting aside my books and I was going to have a pot of coffee and a full day uh, right there in my office at home and read to my heart's content and study to get ready for the next sermon. And nothing happened. And then on Wednesday morning, snow. Who knew? I'm telling you, they're false prophets. And I don't mean to offend uh, some of the, well, I do a little bit, but not all, not, not too much. But I was reminded last week that, that when we forecast a particular future and it doesn't wind up happening, we get a little frustrated. We get disconcerted. And I thought about this text. John's vision for the church in Thyatira wasn't actually turning out the way he imagined. And he's disappointed. And he writes a word on behalf of Christ. Indeed, he had had a vision. He writes the word that Christ gave to him to the church at Thyatira. I want to begin before we get into the text with a little context. Thyatira was about 45 miles southeast of Pergamum. You can see now we're on the fourth church. We've gone from Ephesus. Uh, we've gone to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. And the interesting thing is this is also the Roman postal route. Seriously. This was the route that the Roman postal service would have taken in order to deliver the mail. John's apocalyptic vision. 45 miles southeast of Pergamum. It's on the road to Sardis. And if you know the geography, if you, if you know the landscape, it's just uh, situated on the south bank of the Lycus River Valley, and so it's a very fertile area. It's interesting to me that of the seven letters to the seven churches, did you know that this is the longest letter of them all? And it's ironic because Thyatira was the least important city, say historians, of all seven. It was the least remarkable it was the least known in Asia Minor. And I think that the length of this letter implies something that needs to be said. There is no such thing as an insignificant church. Sometimes insignificant clergy, ineffective clergy or lay leaders, but there's no such thing as an insignificant church. Every community, Every village, every town, every hill and vale needs a lampstand. Every town needs the witness of the gospel. And house churches are no less important than mega churches. In fact, did you know I read recently that in America today, half of our churches, 50% worship today 75 or under. There is no insignificant church. What's unique about Thyatira that you may not know is that it was actually a city that was the center of manufacturing and marketing. In fact, there's archaeological evidence that's been found that says there's a fair number of trade guilds or trade unions that were discovered there, woodworkers, linen workers, tanners, leather workers, potters, bakers, 
There were bronze smiths. There were, there were clothing makers, garment makers, and there were those who dyed the color of the clothing. In fact, you may recall that the first Christian convert in Macedonia, the first Christian convert on European soil, you know who it was? It was Lydia of Thyatira. She was a fashion designer, probably a part of the guild. She was a dealer in purple, in purple cloth. You remember Paul met her in Philippi. Apparently, she had moved to Philippi. She had a retail outlet for her textual, uh, textual mission there. And Paul met her on the creek bank on a Sabbath day and was preaching to a small handful group of women there who had gathered for prayer. And Lydia was there, and she confessed her faith in Jesus as a result of Paul's ministry. In fact, her house in Philippi became the parsonage for Paul and Silas, the headquarters in Europe, the Vatican for the church. I think, though the Scripture doesn't say so, that Lydia, when she went back from Philippi to Thyatira, she started her own church in her own house. There are no insignificant churches. So these trade unions, what's interesting is these trade associations were interlinked with local religious observances in Thyatira. And so part of the criterion for being a member of one of these guilds included that you participate in the ritual feasting at the pagan shrines in the city. And to be honest with you, they were pretty shady. The divine guardian of Thyatira was a god, little g, named Tyremnos. He was associated with the Greek sun god Apollo, the patron god of the manufacturer's union. And so to honor that god with the little g and to sort of mash with the culture, these associations would gather in these pagan temples and they would eat meat sacrificed to idols or false gods. And that idolatry always led, not sometimes, always led to immoral behavior, to drunkenness and revelry and so forth. For a person to refuse participation in the association was risky. In fact, for some, it was economical suicide. And I tell you, for a disciple of Jesus, not to join the guild was suicide for them in terms of their own isolation and persecution. But if they joined, it was apostasy. And so they were faced with a decision. The question is, to what extent am I to be faithful to Jesus, to the one God? How does one live out one's countercultural faith in a pagan culture? That's the question, and that's the backdrop of the text. End of history lesson. John begins here as he does with all the churches. He starts with a commendation, and then he gets to the criticism, right? The commendation is this. I know your works. Notice the order. Love, faith. I know your love, faith, service, patient endurance. It's all good. I know that your last works are greater than your first. In other words, they're having an impact. The gospel's advancing. It's making headway. They're increasingly effective. So far, so good. And then John drops the bomb. Here comes the criticism. 
but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication. The word in Greek means apostasy, idolatry, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jezebel, false teacher. Now pause it there for a moment. You know good and well that this woman's parents did not name her Jezebel. That, that, that didn't happen. No one in their right mind would name a daughter Jezebel any more than I would baptize a baby that you bring named Judas. I've been doing this for 36 years. I've never baptized a baby whose name was Judas. It just, it, it, it just doesn't happen. I've never baptized a baby named Pilate because that name is ruined for all time. I've never baptized a baby named Adolf. And by the way, if you're expecting and looking for a name, Caiaphas and Herod are also available, but nobody's using them. It's, it was once a name, but it's not a name here. It's an epithet. It's, it's a label. It's a euphemism. It's a description of a person's character, the Jezebel. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? Anybody ever studied the Hebrew Scriptures? You remember, don't you, 1 Kings 16. There was a woman whose actual name was Jezebel. She was a Phoenician queen, daughter of Ethbal, king of Sidon, who married in a little political arrangement the king of Israel, whose name was King Ahab. Ninth century BCE, when she came, she brought with her her worship of Baal, the fertility god of the Canaanites, whose ritual included not only animal sacrifice or food burned to idols, but also sexual indulgences and promiscuity. Jezebel single-handedly in the ninth century attempted to destroy the prophets of Yahweh and would have had it not been for a prophet named Elijah, who though weary and discouraged and depressed, in fact, at one point, almost suicidal, but by the grace of God, persevered. Apparently, Thyatira has a Jezebel. It's an epithet. Now, we still do that today. I don't know if you all do, but in the first church that Sherry and I served, over South Atlanta, meanest man we ever met. We, didn't, we never knew his name. His initials were J.C. That's unfortunate. <laughs> J.C. We never really knew what J.C. stood for, but he was the meanest, most negative. God rest his soul, if he made it, and I hope he did. One of the meanest people that I've ever met. And so then from then on, the rest of the churches that we would go to, we'd say, well, I met our J.C. today at the new church. And in every church we've been to, except for this one, of course, <laughs> every church has had, it's an epithet. In Thyatira, they had a JC. They had a Jezebel. Here's what we know about her. She was a self-appointed prophet. In other words, the bishop didn't ordain her. The church didn't lay hands on her. 
The charge conference didn't elect her or approve of her. She's one of those who, do, who doesn't ask permission but asks forgiveness. But in this case, she didn't do either one because even when Pastor John called her out, there was no repentance. There was no turning from sin. And John is graphically clear about what happens when there's a lack of repentance. Christianity has no message for those of us who don't realize we're sinners. And she didn't know. His critique, interestingly enough, is not just personal, aimed at Jezebel, it's corporate. It's not just addressed to her, but to the church as a whole, when he says, you have tolerated her. And I, I need to call time out right here for just a minute, because I, for one, think we need some tolerance, don't you? I mean, in this polarized, divisive, politically split apart culture of ours, Lord have mercy. We need some tolerance. If you've ever been on the wrong side of intolerance, you know how nasty it can be. I mean, I'm talking about prejudice. I'm talking about discrimination or favoritism, partiality or narrow-mindedness. If you've been on the other end of that barrel, it is destructive. But tolerance? Tolerance is good as long as it means patient and forbearing. But in the Greek language, that word tolerance can mean to promote, to endorse. And the concern in Thyatira, in the manufacturing capital of Asia Minor, is that this self-appointed prophet is actually corrupting the faith by fusing conflicting beliefs and practices that don't mix. Now, there's an Old Testament word for it. It's called syncretism, and some in the flock are buying it. It's like what happens when, when you combine the gospel with, with success and get prosperity gospel. doesn't mix, but some people are endorsing it. Did you know that there was a group in the early church called the Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, who apparently became so spiritual that they concluded that ethics, morals don't matter. They became so spiritually minded that they were no earthly good. Have you ever known anybody like that? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, we need pie in the sky, but we need ham where we am too. We need both of those. But isn't it interesting? I think it's the opposite today. We've become so earthly minded that we're not much spiritual good anymore. But the Gnostics were a group that divided the body from the spirit. And they essentially said, the faith, Christian faith is only about the spiritual part. doesn't matter what you do with your body. God won't mind. Besides, business is business if you're in the association. But anything that concerns ethics, morality, law, it doesn't matter. God has freed us from all of that. And there's another word for that. It's called antinomianism, which means lawlessness. It means that the law doesn't matter it's anarchy. And then Paul comes along and says, you know what? Your body does matter. In fact, he refers to it as the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And just like this temple needs to be cleaned and cleansed for worship, our bodies are important. The issue at stake here in Thyatira is one that every town and every generation has to deal with. How on earth do we engage the culture without compromising the message? Every generation. How do we live in the world without being of the world? How do we love the culture and at the same time be different? Now look, I don't have all the answers, but I'm pretty sure about these questions. And we don't always get it right, do we? Faith and culture, sometimes some of our churches didn't get segregation right. We didn't. We didn't get slavery right. In fact, there was a whole new denomination, a Southern Methodist church that was started. Some of us didn't, not sure about women in ministry. And interestingly enough, in these issues, both sides used Scripture to prove their point, to validate their viewpoint. We don't always agree on every issue And what I've discovered is that sometimes, I'm just sometimes, people in the Bible don't agree either. Let me give you an example. John, who wrote Revelation, and Paul were not exactly on the same page when it came to this issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. In Thyatira, John said, no, no way. But in Corinth, Paul said, well, we understand that idols are not really real. We get that. And you got to eat. And a ribeye is a ribeye. So as long as you don't worship the idol, don't go to the pagan temple, but you can buy the meat after it's been sold to the butcher. And as long as you don't embrace the idol, you are free to eat the meat, he said. But listen, But if my eating the ribeye is a stumbling block to you, I will never eat the ribeye again. You see what he said? This is not about meat. That's just the presenting issue. It's about the witness of the church. If what I do, if who I am, if my ethics impact the witness of the lampstand, the church, in a way that trips up my brother or sister, then I'm not going to do it. That's why today when you come, it's not real wine, it's grape juice. It's gotta be Welch's, it was Welch's in the Bible. (laughs) This is not wine, why? Nothing wrong with wine. We have friends in this congregation who are in recovery And if we serve them the elements of God's grace and it trips them up, God have mercy. And so we use juice. There's nothing wrong with wine. In fact, some of you are just literalists on some, like 1 Timothy 5, 23, take a little wine for your stomach. I mean, y'all serious about keeping that one. We're serious about it. I'm just trying to be biblical here. But if my behavior causes someone else to stumble, that's a different issue, isn't it? Here's a word. I have a word from the Lord that both John and Paul agree on. It's in Galatians 5.13. Listen to this. 
You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Serve one another in love. There it is. Toy King told me the other day that when she was pastor at Nancy Webb Kelly before she came to Brentwood, she ran Community Care Fellowship. A lot of you volunteer in that. She said, we started every worship service with these words. I would say to the people, you know what? God loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. And she would say to them, turn to your neighbor and say, God loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. In fact, I want you to do it right now. Turn to your neighbor and say that. Say it. Now I realize that's enough. I realize that some of you are in the Patriot denomination and some are in the Rams denomination, but what you just told your neighbor, that's it. That's it. That's the gospel within the gospel. And she said, when we would do that, it just changed the temperature in the room. But I have to tell you, the one point I disagree with Toy is there is something you can do about it. You can receive it, and you can give it away. In fact, I was taught by my Sunday school teacher that you can't keep it unless you give it away. One example, then we'll come to the table. Thinking about my dad today, if he was alive in about three weeks, he'd be 90 years old. He used to tell this story. I can, I can see him. He used to tell a story about a boy who went to the pet store one day and, and he just, he wanted a puppy. Jim, you remember this. And a little boy went in there and he walked with a limp. He'd had some kind of impediment uh, as the result of a childhood disease. And he went in, looked around, spotted the one he wanted. It was pitiful. It was a pitiful little thing. It was the smallest dog in the store. And he went up to the clerk and he said, that's the one I want. And the clerk was kind of taken aback and he said, son, you don't want that puppy. He's the runt of the litter. He's, he's got issues. He's barely, one of his eyes is not even opening. In fact, we're not sure that he's going to survive. Let me show you some other, let me show you some others that are healthier. And the boy said, nope, that's the one I want. I've made up my mind. And the proprietor was a little curious, and he said, son, wh why, why do you want that one? I mean, he's, he's probably not going to survive. And the little boy hiked up his trousers and showed his braces and said, but mister, you don't know what love can do. He gave him the dog. You know you know what love can do. It changes, it changes everything. God loves you, and there's not a thing you can do about it except to accept and give it away. When you do that, it will change you and the church and the culture, and when you walk in, people will say, he doesn't look like a Thyatiran. 
He looks like Jesus. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.